Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. Hi, everyone. This is the Yale University Press Podcast. I'm Michael Hoke. You've probably seen the Hollywood depiction of the Nazi obsession with the occult and supernatural. Captain America fought against it. Indiana Jones thwarted multiple attempts to harness the power of religious relics. The idea has even made its way into video games like Wolfenstein. But does pop culture get it right? As Eric Kurlander explains in his latest book, Hitler's Monsters, A Supernatural History of the Third Reich, the Nazis had a complicated relationship with the supernatural. Eric is professor of history at Stetson University, where he teaches courses on modern German, European, and world history. Eric, thank you for joining me today. Thank you, Michael, for having me on. To start with this idea of Nazis and pop culture, how accurately has pop culture depicted the Nazi interest in the supernatural? That's a great question. Um, If you call everything, going back to the World War II comic book depictions that you might have seen in Batman or Captain America in the 40s, through all the films and and pulp fiction um, to the present, there are elements of truth uh, throughout all of that. There are, you know, there's a thread there where certain things are related to a, an authentic um, uh, history, but collectively, it, most of it is, is just is fiction, <laughs> right? So there's almost nothing depicted in popular culture that, as depicted, is accurate. And in a general sense, um, how did the supernatural fit in with the the Nazis' um, overall worldview? Um, after doing a few years of research, I, I said, well, there's a lot of different kinds of thinking which fall under this rubric of what I would call supernatural. And I even kind of had to think through what, what concept unites all of these. And I came up with this idea of a supernatural imaginary, that there are all these modes of inquiry kind of epistemologies, uh, doctrines that many Germans and Austrians shared, and that the Nazis who came of age in the 1890s to the 1920s, they also were immersed in this. So the supernatural imaginary was so widespread, especially among kind of middle class, uh, urban or small town Germans and Austrians, it wasn't so much of you know a small cabal of Nazis bringing in these crazy ideas, it's that they were immersed in this milieu, and the question really is how much they were going to appropriate of it and bring into their own political and social um, worldview. And the supernatural imaginary, where did, where did that come from? How did that make its way sort of into the, to the, the population um, for, the, for the Third Reich to, to use? Right. So, so uh, it's a good question. And the first chapter of the book takes three strands of what I call the supernatural imaginary that extend back into the 19th century. Right. So, again, I don't argue the Nazis created these ideas. They merely were influenced by them, appropriated them, saw the world through their lens. Right. And the three pillars of this, um, I argue, are um, Aereo-Germanic religious beliefs or traditions, which were a kind of alternative that developed in the 19th century coming out of Romanticism and the folkish movement um, to mainstream Christianity. So there's no one Aryan or Germanic religious doctrine that all Nazis accepted, but there were 
a half dozen or a dozen different strains of this, um, parts of which Wagner subscribed to, you kind of Germanized Christianity. Um, others were, were explicitly pagan or even Luciferian. And they, they just, the cluster I call Aerogermanic religion. And that was very powerful by 1914. There were a lot of intellectuals in Germany, largely on the focus right, but also in the center and sometimes left, who were fascinated by these alternative religious traditions, paganism and what have you. Then you've got what I call um, mainstream occultism, which are these kind of holistic doctrines. I mentioned two of them already, anthroposophy and ariosophy, which claim to have united religion and science in some kind of totalizing vision of world history, natural history, right? So um, one of the more famous was Theosophy by Madame Blavatsky. She kind of invented that um, with Edward Bulwer Lytton, a kind of British follower of her of hers. And, and she argued there were seven root races going back to prehistory. And and one of these races was a superior race and it intermingled with aliens possibly to create this kind of mystical superhuman race. But then it, uh, their civilization of Atlantis collapsed for various reasons. And, you know, these other races took over. You could start to see why this might have <laughs> been popular on the right. But Blavatsky's theosophy was actually popular in Britain and America. But a German and Austrian strain of that called anthroposophy then developed, which is under Rudolf Steiner. And then alongside that, you got Ariosophy, which was almost exclusively an Austrian and German strain of occult thinking. And that agreed with Blavatsky in many ways, but emphasized the Aryan element, that this, this Ur race were Aryans who were racially superior, and Jews and Africans and all these other subhuman races had tried to, to destroy them. And when Atlantis, or what they called the Thule, collapsed, the last progenitors of the superhuman race fled to the highest place on Earth because of all the floods that were occurring, which was Tibet, where they preserved the race and religion, which then came back west when the floods receded. So these doctrines, which I would call kind of quintessential occult Masonic doctrines, very powerful within the supernatural imaginary. And then the third element is what I call border science which is just a translation of what the Germans and Austrians themselves called it, Grenzwissenschaft, which has two meanings. One is it's, it, these are scientific doctrines that are on the borders of what mainstream science accept. So basically they're what mainstream scientists might have called pseudoscience. And they are looking at and across the borders of different disciplines in a way that only someone using occultism could do because they argued the mainstream physics and chemistry were too rigid in their boundaries and specialization. So they, this was a positive term for them, Grenzwissenschaft, border science. And this is the kind of scientific application of things like astrology, parapsychology, pendulum dousing, world ice theory that they claimed were real sciences, but only someone who was open to a more cosmic view of the universe and willing to look for forces that no one had yet seen could possibly manipulate or use them, right? So those are the three pillars of what I call the supernatural imaginary. And then the rest of the book is showing how the Nazis interacted with these different doctrines and ideas uh, through 1945. And and going to this idea of the, uh, the um, supernatural imaginary, how much 
um, did Nazi leaders actually believe in these things and how much of it was propaganda or just a way to sort of manipulate public opinion? Right. So great question. Um, and by the end of my research, uh, I came to a kind of a few conclusions in response to that question, which I kept thinking about myself. So number one, even border scientists and occultists constantly attacked each other for being charlatans, right? So the minute that Steiner developed anthroposophy, he said, well, you know, look at these aspects of Blavatsky's theosophy. It's not scientific. You know, she doesn't even have a lab. I have labs and I take pictures of spirits and analyze them and she doesn't. So I'm scientific and she's not, right? <laughs> Astrologers had, you know, rival organizations. We're doing scientific astrology. We actually know how the planets and stars affect human behavior. You're just making stuff up like, you know, gypsy tarot readers. And, and because that was so common, obviously, in a world where there isn't any real empirical basis, it's easy to accuse the other person of being unscientific and claiming scientific uh, uh, practices for yourself. You have to understand that wider culture to understand the contradictions we see in Nazi appropriations of these ideas. Because until my book, I would argue people who saw Nazis rejecting one or the other doctrine said, oh, look, they're actually against occultism or they're against border science or they don't believe in Germanic religion. And what I show is, no, it's just one sect or group within the Nazi party or one individual who, who read one book as a child or one particular – favorite occultist and who's attacking another one <laughs> very often my point is it's not they're for or against it's for they're for one kind of supernatural thinking and not another you see that with religious doctrines as well obviously the you know protestants it's breaking off from catholicism you know methodists and baptists and lutherans didn't get along very well um they're all christians but you know they would attack the oh, how do you you know come on was the eucharist really the body of jesus so you have that same kind of reasoning and debate within occult circles and within the nazi party now that said i do not argue that every nazi leader embraced some kind of supernatural thinking in a way that we would see as somewhat singular to that period obviously I, i'm not i'm not analyzing mainstream privatized christianity right that's not part of my if someone was a devout lutheran and didn't bring it up when talking about miracle weapons or werewolves or war i'm not getting into that but <laughs> but to the degree that they use these ideas that i call the supernatural imaginary there were some nazis i would take reinhard heydrich as the most quintessential who seemed to generally just dislike sectarianism of any kind Right. He didn't care if it was Catholicism, Jehovah's Witnesses or astrologers. If they weren't devout Nazis who just followed whatever the Nazi creed was, he worried about them. And it's hard to see Heydrich at any point positively promoting occult ideas, though at many in many cases he was tolerant of it or backed off because Himmler or Hess or Hitler or someone else said, we're interested in this. So that you can find a few Nazi leaders who were gen generally and ubiquitously skeptical. But when you look more closely, even those who are most associated with being skeptical, like Martin Bormann, right? Martin Bormann, who was the head of Hitler's chancery, he famously was attacking the churches all the time. Also, in, in the limited studies of occultism, he often comes up as anti-occultist. But it turns out he was very much into Nordic mythology, 
hmm. tolerant of some occult or what I would call border scientific doctrines, and just feared the sectarianism of certain of those ideas, right, hmm. as a rival to Nazism. Um, Alfred Rosenberg, who's often comes up in, in my book, he says a lot of critical things of occultism, about occultism. Then at other points, he's pushing his own Aero-Germanic religion or, or agreeing with Himmler that the Aryans, you know, that there was a flood, Atlantis collapsed, and they fled to northern India. So my, my point being, it's, it's both, in short answer to your question. They both appropriated it for political reasons and believed in it. And there are very few who had no investment in it whatsoever. And there are also very few, maybe Himmler, who seemed to embrace almost any aspect of any of these three pillars of the supernatural at all points, right? <laughs> Though even he was critical of some things. But most Nazis were much more invested in, the, in some aspect of these ideas than has previously been accepted. Yeah, I mean, is it it's is it true that uh, that Rudolf Hess tried to broker a peace deal with the United Kingdom because his astrologer told him to do it? Well, so he had been thinking about. I mean, not to get into the mainstream history of the Third Reich too much, but Hess had been kind of marginalized by Bormann and others over the course of the 30s, especially once the war broke out. He was deputy Führer, so technically the second-ranking Nazi within the party, but he had very little to do. And he also, and he was right about this, um, thought that opening a two-front war against the Soviet Union while still fighting Britain, possibly having America come in, was not a good idea. So a combination of his own kind of self-pity and marginalization with this belief that he knew English and was a great pilot and could kind of fly to England or Scotland and broker a peace and, you know, and help his Fuhrer motivated him to conceive of that idea, but his astrologer apparently told him what day to go and confirmed that it was a good idea. And so once he did it, crash landed, got captured, no one you know, wanted to broker a peace with him. Um, finally, this is eight years into the Third Reich, Bormann, Rosenberg, and Goebbels, all for different reasons, are like, see, this guy's nuts. You know, Now it's time to move against these sectarians. <laughs> and that did lead briefly to a, a, a kind of salvo against occultism. But as I show in the book, it, it petered out very quickly for obvious reasons. And did that... Uh, Too many of those leaders were invested in it. So. <laughs> and did that uh, sort of uh, unceremonious end to his uh, attempts, did that shake his faith in his astrologer? Uh, fr frankly, I mean, if you read like the Spandau Diaries by Speer... Uh, Hess, if anything, became more um, more transparently nuts after his capture um, and talked about all sorts of weird conspiracy theories and ideas. I, I haven't studied him in prison, but let's just say that there's no evidence he suddenly became some kind of sober rationalist. Uh, and, you know, and the, the, the debate has always been, was he pretending to be mad so he wouldn't be executed or was he genu genuinely a little off mm -hmm. and couldn't help it? But uh, but that's another story. That's more about Hess and and the British captivity of uh, and all that. And um, it seems that Hitler w himself was fairly interested in uh, magic. How did he exploit magic for political purposes? Right, it's a good question. I would actually say, especially after doing a couple of these interviews and thinking about where I'd put these figures on a spectrum, Hitler in some ways was the quintessential Nazi when it came to supernatural thinking. 
maybe he and him and Goebbels, in the sense that they really straddled the line of recognizing how popular that kind of thinking was, especially post-war, among the, the constituencies that they drew on, kind of lapsed Protestant, lower middle class and middle class Germans and Austrians, right? He recognized how popular it was. At the same time, having been immersed in it himself, he also picked and, and chose certain aspects of those doctrines and seemingly believed in it, right? So in terms of his reading of magic, this parapsychological tome from the 20s and 30s, we're, we're 90% certain he did read it and annotated it because it was in his library, it was dedicated to him, and there were notes made that people who have looked at his other annotations suggest are the same kinds of ones he made in other books. So I assume that that is his, his annotation. And it looks like from the passages he was highlighting, whether or not he actually believed that he had magical forces that he could harness in himself like a shaman to manipulate others, he found the logic behind that parapsychological reasoning very important and read it. Clearly with an eye to, if you look at the, in my book, at the passages he cites, kind of political ma manipulation of the population, right? So it's, it's not clear he was a devoted occultist, but he certainly realized in his kind of uh, era and in the context of the Weimar Republic, he could use these ideas. He's, he could use magic to manipulate the public. On other occasions, for example, he did hire a dowser to check the Reich chancellery for death rays, right? That is a traditional border science, you know, occult belief. He believed in world ice theory and gave an honorary doctorate to the co-founder of world ice theory, which is this bizarre theory that has no basis in reality. And in fact, even before World War I, this is another point I make repeatedly in the book, because some of my colleagues who study occultism say, well, you know, 100 let's not be anachronistic. 100 years ago, 80 years ago, many mainstream scientists, many highly educated people with PhDs believed in all these things. And what I find is that's just not true. Einstein and Max Planck and Freud are not running around going, yeah, you know, maybe there are these spiritual forces manipulating us and maybe astrology is, is accurate. <laughs> They're saying this stuff does not make any sense. As, as one mainstream geologist says about world ice theory, you could replace ice with olive oil and the theory would be no less accurate, <laughs> right? If you just said everything was made of olive oil. Um, and yet you've got Hitler promoting it. You've got Himmler wanting it to be the official science of the Third Reich. So it's, it's not fair to people in the 20s and 30s, German and otherwise, who were very well educated, to say, oh, you know, everyone was into it back then. People who were half-educated or, or partially, uh, you know, in, in invested in science but not completely, you know, they didn't have PhDs, they weren't physics majors, they may have found this stuff compelling, right? Um, many people were into folklore and religion as well as they are in any era, but the mainstream scientists recognized that this was, most of them, um, really not authentic science. <laughs> and Hitler, we have evidence, again— uh, embrace some of these ideas. So Hitler kind of straddles the manipulation in cynical political way and the authentic belief that I think defines the Nazi party. And uh, going back to this world ice theory, what what is world ice theory? So world ice theory was a doctrine developed by another Austrian, a kind of Austrian uh, amateur scientist and writer named Hans Horbiger, 
who in the 1890s had a kind of fever dream, uh, woke up and, 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 his, and he wrote down what he saw, which were giant blocks of ice surrounding all the planets. And then it looked like the planets were made of ice. And he came up with this theory. He didn't even have enough science to, to really create a doctrine out of it until he met this astrologer named Philip Fout, who helped you know, systematize it in something called a book called Glacial Cosmogony around 1911. And it basically said that everything in cosmic and Earth's natural history could be explained by giant blocks of ice smashing into each other, um, exercising kind of gravitational pull on one another, moons of ice that, of course, aren't there anymore, hitting the Earth, causing floods, changing the temperature, killing off the frost giants. I'm not kidding with this kind of stuff. <laughs> um, that perhaps there was some kind of div divine sperma that came from uh, one of these blocks of ice, which led to the early races. You can see why this was popular among folkish <laughs> and, and right-wing occult thinkers, because they saw it as a kind of scientific corollary to their racial views and Aerogermanic religious views. So in the 20s, when mainstream scientists had basically said, look, this guy's nuts, he'd go on radio in the Weimar Republic and he'd get all these like you know amateur retired engineers and lawyers and and right wing proto nazis calling and said well we think you're right this is brilliant you know you know it's the jewish the jews are trying to you know prevent your science from becoming mainstream but we know it's it's actually more authentic um and then you know hitler and himmler would say the same thing you know modern physics is is a jewish science um, Horberger has an authentic Austro-German science that really explains everything. So um, I, I think that gives you a sense of Horberger. He himself, was he a radical fascist? Not really, but his kids in the Third Reich, after he died, were all working with Himmler to try to preserve his ideas and promote them um, in lieu of real science, right, or whatever we would call mainstream science. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, even today, we still have you know, science skeptics, and it's sort of interesting to hear how how it kind of evolves over the over the years. One of my most uh, <laughs> familiar sort of pop culture uh, depictions of of the Nazis and and the occult or the religion was obviously Indiana Jones. And did the Nazis really go looking for holy relics like the Ark of the Covenant and the Holy Grail, as like they did in those movies? Yeah, great question. And this is one of those many cases where there's partial truth, right? So they really did search for the Holy Grail. There really was an Indiana Jones, but he was German, gay, and not particularly <laughs> supportive of the Third Reich, a guy named Otto Rahn. Um, but, I mean, I can tell that story if you'd like. The And this ties into stuff we've already talked about. So the Holy Grail in kind of Freemason and occult circles, right? Because these are not mainstream Christians we're talking about. Let's, let's say in the Aerogermanic pillar of the supernatural imaginary, there were a lot of Europeans, some French and British, but many German and Austrian, who believed the Holy Grail was really, whether a physical manifestation or a spiritual symbolic one, a manifestation of a lost Indo-Aryan religion. And by the early 20th century, some of these thinkers had theorized, some of whom were also anthroposophists or ariosophists. Uh, Steiner wrote books about this, right? That the grail had been kind of preserved, you know, to just to backtrack a bit, 
You remember how the flood hit and destroyed the Aryan civilization of Atlantis or Thule, and a few of their high priests fled east to the highest point they could find, Tibet? Well, so these people thought that the Holy Grail, whether it was a dove or a magical artifact, was some kind of religious belief that came back from Tibet via Persia, another Aryan or Indo-Aryan civilization. Rosenberg and Himmler, by the way, bought into this and came in the Middle Ages back to Europe and was embraced by pagan Aryans as an Ur-Aryan religion. And the um, Albigensians, right, the, the Cathars in medieval France were supposedly the ones really preserving the secrets of the Grail and practicing this kind of neo-pagan Indo-Aryan religion. And the Inquisition that developed at that time was the Jews manipulating the Catholic Church to destroy this Indo-Aryan or Germanic religion and with it their civilization. So they were preserving the grail. They hid it in Mont Segur, this, this mountain in the Pyrenees. Mm-hmm. Fast forward hundreds of years that this idea is resuscitated by Masonic groups and occultists and, it, and a young German philologist named Otto Rahn comes across this idea goes to France to hang out with French occultists who believe in it, writes a book called Crusade for the Grail. Think about Indiana Jones here, (laughs) right? All about this history I just told you, where the Grail's really from, what its real meaning is, pointing out a lot of the matriarchal aspects of it, by the way, kind of earth mother witches who practice in the woods. Himmler and some of his acolytes come across the book and say, this is great because we believe in all this stuff. Why don't you come work for the SS? So they hire Otto Rahn in 35, I think, to pursue his research on the Grail, which he does with, with funds from the SS Ananaraba, this, this Institute for Ancestral Research that Himmler sets up to promote kind of research on Arianism and eventually weapons and other bizarre things. But he gives him all this money. He keeps doing his research. And in 37, he produces a second book, officially endorsed by Himmler in the Third Reich, called Lucifer's Court, in which he elaborates, says, yes, the grail was preserved by these Cathars. These Cathars were actually Luciferians, Manichaean kind of Luciferians who understood the real message of Indo-Aryan religion it was not Jesus's message. But the idea that Lucifer was the Lord of Light, and they were following the Lord of Light, and the Catholics and Jews wanted to extinguish that light and capture the Grail for themselves or destroy the Grail. And it's up to the Third Reich to resuscitate this Ur-Aryan religion and what they called witchcraft, but what we'll call Ario-Germanic kind of authentic, authentic spirituality. And Himmler loved it. Carl Maria Villagut loved it. All these SS people loved it. And he even distributed copies. Werner Best and all these SS leaders are ordering copies during the war long after Ron's dead. And we can get into his personal life in a, in a minute um, and sending it to the front. Like, you need to read this if you want to understand what we're fighting for. This I'm not making this up. This is stuff from the archives. OK, so. <laughs> there is a real Indiana Jones. His name was Otto Rahn. They did search for the grail. Um, there you go. <laughs> uh, well, th- obviously the idea here is that, you know, these, these myths and these, these supernatural ideas um, were 
believed and used by uh, some. What are some lessons for today, do you think, with, with regards to the idea of believing myth over reality? So with that in mind, I'd say, um, and it's funny, if you look at the reviews of the book so far, most of the reviewers, which I guess uh, you know, the alt-right in America would call the mainstream media or the left-wing media, pick up on my epilogue, which says, look, supernatural thinking of the kind we saw 100 years ago facilitated alt-right and fascist movements. And we see similar kind of um, rejection of reality, complexity, empirical nuance in dealing with social and political problems today, often supported by a faith-based belief in some kind of conspiracy theory, religion. And by the way, this could go for fundamentalist uh, Islam as well as for evangelical Christianity or kind of alternative religious beliefs or what have you, right? There are, I'm not arguing that the supernatural imaginary is always the same in every society. I am arguing that supernatural thinking that, that your belief, that belief matters, that faith matters. And if something makes sense to you, it's an authentic way to, to intervene in a, in a major question or debate or foreign or domestic policy. That idea is dangerous, right? And it facilitated fascism, at least in Central Europe, not because everyone wanted to kill Jews, but because their epistemology, their willingness to suspend disbelief in so many ways when it came to science, religion, politics, social issues, allowed a party like the Nazis to come into power and, and get away with things they could not have gotten away with in a normal period. And I do worry that we're in a similar um, era now where the, the recourse to simply saying, well, I don't believe it or that doesn't fit my conspiracy-driven view of the world or it must be a left-wing conspiracy or a Muslim conspiracy, or the Jews are behind it, that's, that's happening again. And I do see corollaries, right, and recourse to mythology and faith as opposed to reason, complexity. And I do not see that as a left-right issue. I'd argue that in, our, in America, the reason so many leading Republicans, including all the presidents and presidential candidates through 2012, rejected the Trump's movement was linked to their feeling that their party had somehow become a become a co-opted by alt-right thinking and ways of approaching the world that just did not fit their classical liberal or traditional Christian view of conservatism. So the book is Hitler's Monsters, A Supernatural History of the Third Reich. Eric, thanks for coming on. Thank you very much. That does it for this week's episode of the Yale University Press podcast. Thank you for listening, and be sure to visit YaleBooks.com to keep up with this podcast as well as the latest from our blog and our authors. For more episodes, please subscribe on iTunes or find us on SoundCloud, Stitcher, or your favorite app.